Hey friends, this is Fun Therapy, and my name is Mike Foster. And together we're going to dive into the messy and imperfect parts of life. And we're going to do it with a smile. You see, the key to a beautiful life is to be able to bless the thing that broke us open. Because the world needs us fully open. Open hearts and open minds, open hands, and your tenderness and your vulnerability, your openness comes through the breaking. And for that, we will give thanks. My name is Mike Foster, and this is Fun Therapy. All my Fun Therapy friends, thank you so much for being you. I love you guys. I'm so thankful and grateful you and your story. Thank you for showing up each week for this podcast. Uh, A lot of you are new listeners, and I just want to say welcome to you. I'm so glad you're here. And whether you're a new listener, an old listener, a semi-new listener, whatever kind of listener, a passive listener, (laughs) a reluctant listener, I want to ask you to do something for me. Uh, I want to ask you to subscribe to this podcast and that way the the episode just loads right up on your player. Also, uh, please leave a quick rating and review on iTunes. That really helps the Fun Therapy Podcast. Maybe take 10 seconds right now to do that. Maybe just hit the pause button real quick and maybe you're in bed or maybe you're on the treadmill or at the gym or wherever you're listening right now. It would mean a lot if you rated the podcast on iTunes and also screen capture your phone and share it with uh, your friends on your feeds. That is a big help uh, for the success of the podcast and just more people finding what we're doing here. So thank you. Thank you in advance. Uh, Also, I'd like to connect with you on Instagram. If you're on Instagram, I'm on Instagram. It's my social media of choice. And I do Twitter, Facebook, a little bit, but mostly uh, it's Instagram. I like it. And I'm Mike Foster 2000, Mike Foster 2000. That's uh, my name on Instagram. And I post like, many blogs and, and little helpful ideas for your growth on my feed. And so I think you'll dig it. I think it'd be helpful for you and your growth. And as you're going about your week, Mike Foster 2000, he's going to help you. To a great week. Also, my website, uh, Mike Foster TV. I have my speaking and my workshop scheduled there. My books are there. You can also get information about uh, my private coaching and sign up for my new bi-monthly email. So lots of good stuff over there at MikeFoster.tv and also lots of good stuff at Instagram at MikeFoster2000. Okay. So you hear me talk about this a lot, but I want to mention it one more time. Uh, My Rescue Academy Workshop, it's coming up soon. It's two days of professional and personal development. We keep the the workshop small and personal, and it's very hands-on. And right now, just for our Fun Therapy listeners, we actually have a code that will give you 25% off your registration fee. So your registration, it includes uh, two days of training, meals, and a special VIP dinner at my lovely little house with my 
amazing wife, Jennifer. And uh, in order to get that 25% off discount, just use the coupon code FUN for fun therapy. Just use the word FUN when checking out and it'll give you the 25% off the registration fee. All information is at rescueacademy.com. That's rescueacademy.com. All right. So now excited to introduce my guest for this episode. So my friend Scott Harrison is the founder of Charity Water and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. By the way, 100% of the proceeds from Scott's book is going to Charity Water Projects, which is awesome. So I sat down with Scott and we chat about the grief of losing his mom this year and navigating the intense pressures of leadership. And now here's Scott on Fun Therapy. Yeah, I mean, it's been such a challenging and interesting season. Uh, this year, I feel like more has happened, um, you know, both uh, real sorrow and tragedy, which I can talk about in a moment, and then just this sense of opportunity and, you know, the Charity Water is in this period of explosive growth. And, you know, in, in some ways, it's uh, it, it, there's just a lot going on. I think that this, the quietness and the stillness is probably this is at an all-time low if i think back to you know maybe the last decade um at this moment so you know the the year started off um it, it was year basically we're in our 11th year so this is really the start of a new decade of charity water and uh there was a moment where i almost burned out and and wanted to quit and then kind of came back and and pushed through that and this year started off coming um, coming off 40% growth, which is uh, the last year was just an amazing year for the organization. It was the first year we raised over $50 million. Wow. Um, you know, I was saying to my staff, like, guys, we have to raise a million dollars a week now. I remember when that was a year, not a right. week. Uh, we, we were able to serve over a million people with clean and safe water for the first time, uh, which was another record for us. It was just kind of the year of record. So amazing to start a new decade off. I mean, our gala raised almost five million bucks in a night. We'd never come close to that before. Um, then uh, right at the beginning of the year, my mom was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And anybody familiar with my story you knows that, uh, you know, mom is this huge part of my story. In fact, I, uh, I, I get up on stage and normally the first words out of my mouth are, when I was four, my mom almost died. And I, I talk about the carbon monoxide gas leak in our, in our home that destroyed my mother's health and, and rendered her an invalid from that point on. And, uh, you know, mom was allergic to the world, uh, her, her immune system was so compromised by this carbon monoxide that she just couldn't fight off anything chemical, anything like perfume or the ink from books or car fumes would make her sick. So she lived most of her life in isolation. Um, but my dad and I used to always joke that mom was going to live to be a hundred because she had effectively isolated her from uh, isolated her body from anything bad. You know, she ate only organic food. Uh, she lived in only the purest environments, uh, air filters and charcoal masks and, and 
I think it was it was a surprise to both of us when when she was diagnosed with with this, and it was uh, it was a pretty tough period. It, she she died exactly four months after diagnosis, and you know if you if you'd asked either of us, I mean, mom had a good fifteen years left. Um, was was you know outside of that, she'd really learned how to cope with this illness after forty years. So that was really difficult. And, you know, for me, I, I was canceling trips to San Francisco and LA. And, you know, one week, I think I canceled 17 speaking engagements and meetings in London. Um, and just, you know, just kept bailing to go back and forth to the hospital and really stepped out of the business just to, to be there for these last crucial months. And we brought her home to hospice. And I would say the actual last week was the worst thing I've ever experienced. Um, seeing someone die of pancreatic cancer uh, in our home. Uh, my wife was around, uh, our kids were around uh, watching, you know, my father crawl into a hospital bed and, and just, you know, everything goes wrong with the body in those, those final days. Uh, and then when she actually died, it felt like this almost euphoric uh, period of relief and this mm. this huge exhale because the suffering had been so bad. I mean, we were almost elated in that short term that she wasn't suffering anymore. And, you know, I didn't have to see my dad suffer anymore. Um, and then, uh, you know, I kind of went straight back to work. I mean, already with a, a couple month debt, um, the organization continuing growth this year and just you know, tried to make up the speeches and, you know, making up these, a lot of these trips, just, just feeling really, really behind and trying to be there for my dad, you know, throughout the whole time who's, who's really been struggling. You know, I'm an only child, so there were no other brothers and sisters around to help. And dad's, uh, you know, dad's in a, in a, in a house all by himself with two cars in the driveway and, and really trying to find out what his new life is like. So tell me about the grief and the processing of this grief for you it almost sounds like um your mom passed and because of the demands of life and the realities of the work that you do that there's sort of a sense of i gotta get back i like grief is gonna have to wait yeah i it's interesting mike i'm i'm uh I'm a futurist and I spend 99.9% .9 of my, my brain energy and my thought uh, in the future. Um, and th this is, I've never been very reflective. I've never really looked back. Um, I, I think that's allowed me to <laughs> turn on a dime and, and, and go from a, a, a 10 year period of drugs and pornography and gambling and, uh, addiction to just walking in a completely new direction and just never doing any of that stuff again. Um, and not really feeling that much regret or shame over those periods because I wasn't doing that anymore. Mm -hmm. And and the new was all about change and different kind of living. So I think when, when my mom was diagnosed, um, I began the grieving process. So I really was four months ahead of my dad. Mm. Um, I was leaving for a miracle. I was flying around, um, you know, to, to different church conferences, uh, uh, asking for prayer from from different leaders uh, that I knew, and and was certainly open to the idea of a of a miracle, but it would need to be that. 
you know, I, I did the research on this kind of cancer. Mom was 95 pounds to begin with. Uh, she was not going to beat this in the natural. So I really had four months to grieve as I saw the decline. And my dad was fighting. Well, let's do chemo. Let's do radiation. Um, it, it, was, it was me really that was advocating for hospice just because the writing was, was on the wall. And I, I wanted her to die at home and not uh, in a hotel room after a 25-day stay. So I think uh, for me, it was the, the, the grieving process. Um, I, I had four months to grieve and was, was really glad that I was present through it. And I was, I was not choosing the business first. I mean, it was really choosing mom even over my own kids and, and family at that time. Um, and then, you know, it felt like the chapter closed mm. and, and we were, we were able to do a really nice memorial campaign for her and, um, people gave more than $80,000 or wow. so to, to get a bunch of wells built in her name. And there, there's a, a period in time where my dad and I want to go and scatter her ashes in, in Africa and actually go to some of these villages. And hopefully I can introduce some of the people that have clean water because of mom to my dad. Um, but you know, I, I've got, uh, I, I just have so much other things going on. Mm-hmm. It was, it, it felt, it felt almost easy to, to shift back to the organization and, and my family. To lose a loved one is not easy. It's so fascinating to hear how Scott has processed his grief in a very unique way. One thing I've learned over the years that there is no right way to do grief. There's no instruction manual. It looks different for everyone. Whether you have lost a parent or a child or a close friend, the grieving process is unique for everyone. And perhaps maybe this year, like Scott, you have lost someone or something close to you. It can be a physical death, but it also can be just someone who has left your life. Maybe you saw it coming or maybe it was a complete shock. Either way, let me encourage you that whatever the loss might be, whatever the death might look like, work the process. Don't feel rushed. Don't put any expectations on yourself of how this season should look. Just feel it welcome it and give yourself grace as you walk through the mystery of grief what have you um what have you learned about yourself in this season scott i think i'm i'm willing to do the hard things you know i i was maybe surprised at how willing i was to make some of the the tough decisions and you know just drive back and forth to the hospital um for a a very short visit even if it was hours in the car and the last thing i felt like doing uh so i was i was i was just happy that that i showed up Mm. um and and my wife was was incredibly supportive and and was really um allowed me the the space and the time to be able to do that are you surprised by that response from you, from yourself? Um, no, it's just maybe a nice reminder. Uh-huh. 
um, you know, it, it was interesting because my th- these trips, my my parents feel so invested in the success of Charity Water, and and saying no to the stuff that I said no to, you know, cost um, potentially millions of dollars mm-hmm. for the organization. So my, my parents were saying, "Please go, please go, don't stay around on account of us." You know, mom wants you to go. Mom doesn't want you by the hotel or sorry by the hospital. Um, and I just kept saying, "No, no, I'm going to keep canceling. I'm going to keep canceling." Um, because I, I knew, I knew we were coming up towards the end. How was, uh, I just out of curiosity, how was that process of just leading not only your extended family with your dad and your mom, but, but, but your own family, your own boys, your own kids and, and your wife and, and what, what was that like for you? What did you learn in those moments? Well, I tried to bring them as much as I could. So we we moved in with my father for a couple of weeks afterwards to help plan the memorial service. And I was bringing uh, my son and daughter by the hospital uh, in in the times that mom wasn't in the um, intensive care unit, um, just so that they could bring her joy. So it was really kind of a fluid process. Of I felt like a taxi driver. <laughs> yeah, they were about a, they're about an hour and a half outside of the city. So I was just driving back and forth, sometimes with kids, sometimes without kids, sometimes with my wife, sometimes without, and uh, sometimes in snow, you know, in snowstorms and blizzards. And So one of the things that um, you write about in your book is um, obviously your mom was exposed to uh, carbon monoxide and the situation with the gas company and there's some really, really interesting things that you talk about in terms of fifteen hundred dollars uh, payout, right, for the pain and suffering that your mom went through. I'm curious. I'm curious for you to talk a little bit about what you think about forgiveness and and sort of what happened there. Like that, that seemed very unfair. Yeah, it it did. And and one of the things that I've learned about myself uh, is I I just I just really don't and and maybe again this has to do with not dwelling in the past I just don't hold a grudge against anyone I mean there's no there's not a single person in my life that I'm angry towards um, and if you'd asked me that five years ago or ten years ago it would have been uh, at least kind of post transformation um, that would have been true it's it's very very easy for me just to move on um, or so. You know, maybe maybe my dad taught me that. You know, he could have sued the gas company for negligence and potentially gotten millions and millions of dollars. Um, but he was never bitter, and it was an accident. I mean, the, the gas company didn't try and poison and kill my family. They'd installed a faulty piece of machinery that leaked carbon monoxide. So it's it's always been very easy for me to forgive people, and even to forgive people who didn't ask for forgiveness. Uh, it, it just it just comes very naturally to me. That's a real strength, I would imagine, in your life and in your relationships. I mean that that really is kind of a superpower. Yeah, um, it, it's. I think we all have. Uh, you know, believe me, there's there's plenty of things that I'm not good at. <laughs> there's a long list. I think you read about a bunch of them in the book. <laughs> yes. So so tell me what it was like. In terms of watching, uh, you, know, you write so uh, beautifully about really just the suffering that was 
part of your early life and and childhood and watching your mom suffer and and the questions and your dad trying to problem solve you know what was going on here how do you think watching suffering and sort of like a front row seat to suffering as a child how that has shaped you i think it's made me more compassionate and and empathetic i mean i i'm a crier you know i i cried silly movies and certainly as I've traveled throughout, uh, you know, certainly as I've traveled throughout Africa and India and Asia and seen, you know, some of the really unthinkable suffering that comes along with our work. Um, there are really moments of, uh, deep compassion. I mean, uh, deep sadness, you know, wanting to fix what's wrong in the world. Uh, you know, I was with a woman in Niger, West Africa, I was in the Sahel Desert. It was, gosh, at least 115 degrees that day. And this woman was, was telling me about the loss of eight of her children. And she was naming uh, them all. And she was giving me the age at which she lost them. Two of her children survived, uh, one barely. And you know, she was doing this all as she was standing next to a giant open well with brown, viscous, um, contaminated water. And we, we didn't know that the dirty water killed all eight children, uh, could have been responsible for all of them, potentially. Um, but, you know, I've seen some real grief and, and hardship. And um, I, you know, I write about this, this uh, incident in the book where I'd heard of a 13-year-old girl who was walking for water eight hours a day. And you know, we hear all these stories. Uh, and as, as the story went, at the end of her walk one day she slipped and fell and she broke her clay pot and all of her water spilled out so you know this little girl has just taken uh, eight hours to go and fetch water haul it back home and she has nothing to show for it and she hangs herself and the the elders find this 13 year old girl's body swinging from a tree with a noose around her neck because it was just too much for her to to bear she didn't want to go back so this is i mean this is kind of what what our what we deal with um some some really thinkable um, challenges uh, for people. And, and you know, we, we, you want to help. You know, I really, I, I've been able, I think, to, to focus on the positive and really try and affect change. So Aisa, for example, the woman who lost eight children is now drinking clean, drinking clean water. And we know that her life has changed, you know, albeit too late for those eight children but maybe the two that that she has left um will have a better chance at at health and, and a better life so i think i'm i'm just an optimist i was raised to be an optimist my dad was an optimist um the glass truly is half full and i'm always thinking about how the future is going to be better than the past and what i can do to make that better So listening to Scott's story, you see how he had an early introduction to suffering. As a child, he is front and center to his mom's pain. It became embedded in his childhood. It's like a, like an imprint upon him. And what is so clear to me and probably you too, is that the suffering has produced a supernatural strength inside of Scott. It built empathy. It built compassion. It created resiliency 
It created an extraordinary skill set to do what he does today. And friends, this is the key to living a life of impact. You must harness the pain to leverage the loss. The suffering will give birth to something sacred. sort of your unique wiring has really prepared you to for for this this work in in such a unique way and it's interesting Scott like to think about having a tender heart in this work it it almost is it should be the opposite you got to have a have a you know like a, a armored heart because of what you have to see and the things that you are experiencing and just the the level of pain and suffering that is you know part of your everyday it's such a unique characteristic to to find a, a leader with a tender heart how is that tell me about obviously it has helped you be more compassionate has it has it also had a downside too just that you are overcome with grief in in the moment i think but i've i really turned that into energy i mean when i came back from living in a village where a 13 year old girl took her life by putting a noose around her neck i was just pissed off i mean i just came back with a new energy uh i would stand on stage and say you know not on my watch you know i i refuse to live in a world where simply because a child was born uh, far from the water you know this child would feel the need to take her own life because she didn't have access to something that we've all taken for granted. Um, so I, I think I've been able to just turn those moments into fuel uh, to to keep going. And look, at the end of the day, I mean, we're we're helping. This year, I think the number is thirty six hundred new people get clean water wow. every day of the year. So we're going to serve close to one and a half million people who will go from never having clean water to having clean water for the first time in their life. So, you know, you, you, you break down that. I think it's, uh, it's like one person every 30 seconds or one person every 25 seconds. But there's a lot of hope and there's a lot of things to really focus on that are, that are really positive. Yeah. And I love that about you. And, and it's clear that this, this sense of the experiences, no matter how painful they, they might be and heartbreaking that they might be, whether it be the loss of your mom, you know, seeing some of the things in Africa, there is this, this belief or this value or this, this response that you have to, to use that as a fuel to help make the world a better place. Yeah. And I I think I've always had that. Um, and it's, uh, you know, hopefully that never goes away. So tell me, yeah, for sure. I mean, we need, we need you, Scott. And which actually brings me to kind of my next question for you. I, you mentioned um, some burnout, a season of burnout, and and maybe just feeling overwhelmed. Talk to me about what that was like for you. Yeah, well, I really wanted to cover this in in the book, you know, at length, because I think a lot of people look at Charity Water from the outside, and you know, we've raised like a third of a billion dollars now, and 
you know, there's uh, over a million donors and it's, it's just grown really fast. And, you know, uh, people have said to me, man, it's, hey, you guys just make it look so easy. And you're like, <laughs> it is not easy. It has been unbelievably hard. I remember being at a conference and hearing T.D. Jake's uh, joke. He said, at every level, there's another devil. <laughs> you know, and I, I kind of feel that like the, the hard, the, the more the organization has grown, uh, the more complex it is, the, the more money you're raising, the more money you have to raise, the more people you're supporting. You know, we now support over 650 locals uh, across 17 different countries. I mean, they, they count on us for their jobs. These are drillers and hydrologists and technicians and drivers and accountants and auditors. We've got 80 people here in New York City. Um, it, it only gets increasingly difficult. And... You know, I, I, I really wanted to share some of the behind the scenes stories in the book of, of both my personal self-doubt, am I the right leader, you know, when I almost called it quits, how I almost called it quits, what brought me back from the brink. And there are stories in the, in the book about lawsuits that, you know, people just would have no idea some of the things that near insolvency. I mean, Trudy Butter was almost bankrupt. You know, we talk about this 100% model. Um, but that, if if people really thought about what what was required, I mean, every single penny that we've ever raised from the public, we can't touch to pay a single salary, to pay office rent, to pay for a single flight. Uh, we have to raise all of that separately. And you know, imagine starting two organizations, you know, living on a closet floor of a friend's place, and starting them with zero capital, thirty thousand dollars in debt. And then trying to grow them and run them in absolute perfect balance, um, we we didn't, <laughs> and um, you know it, it's it's still a challenge now. Uh, entering year twelve uh, on Friday of this week, we'll celebrate our twelfth anniversary, and uh, it's 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 mm -hmm. still really hard. And I wanted just to share a lot of that in the book. So tell me what the the costs that you had to pay that you didn't that you were surprised that you had to pay? Like what, what did it cost you in that, those seasons? And clearly, I mean, running at this level as a leader, the responsibilities, the scrutiny, the, you know, the buck stops here, whatever it might be. What was the personal cost to you? Yeah, I'd say, I, well, I think if one of my best qualities is the inability to hold a grudge or, or just, I find it easy to forgive people um, and move on. One of my worst qualities is that I care far too much, or at least certainly did, cared uh, far too much what people thought of me. And so much of my identity was placed in the organization. I mean, it, it, it felt like my baby. I mean, I, they were, I birthed this thing, it felt like. I mean, it was 80 hours, 80-hour uh, weeks for years, and you know, we'd work seven days a week. It was just, just to keep it from dying. I mean, this wasn't because... I thought being a workaholic was was cool. This was just startup mode. This was just to keep it from um, from actually becoming insolvent, from from being no more. And gosh, I mean, I think uh, when we've you know we had eight years of consecutive growth, and when we had our first down year, when we had our first year where we raised less than the year before, when we helped less people, um, I thought it was all my fault. I I became depressed, I became agitated, um, tried to quit and realized that uh, 
I had my identity was in the wrong place. Like my identity was in the numbers. My identity was in how many people we were getting clean water and that that was unhealthy. And, and I thought, I guess people wouldn't respect me or they wouldn't like, it. I, I, I don't know. Gosh. Um, you know, looking back, this feels kind of silly, but mm-hmm. it was real for me. And, you know, I, I remember there was, you know, I talk about this lawsuit and there was this, um, it, it's, it's a, it's a long story that's covered in a couple chapters in, in the book, but um, I just kept trying to make this person who clearly was never going to uh, accept our point of view. I just kept trying to make this guy like me. Like I just couldn't believe it. And I just, you know, eventually some of my leaders said, Scott, this is never going to happen. Like you have to move on, you know, and I would have nightmares and like this, this, uh, this, the protagonist, I guess, was, you know, chasing me in my dreams around the night. I just couldn't let it go. So, um, I won't, I won't mention who, but I, I, I took a, a celebrity to, uh, to Ethiopia once and I've, I've been to the country about 30 times. And, um, for some reason I just wasn't clicking with this person and I just kept trying all week. And finally my assistant said, Scott, you need to give up. Like it's never going to work. Okay. They have decided that they just don't like you and, and you're just making it worse. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, this is, this is years ago. So hopefully now I, I, I'd have a little more, well, I, I, I'd be okay with it now, but you know, it was much more of a people pleaser. Um, back then and that's something I've really had to learn burnout and exhaustion so many leaders have this moment where they just hit a wall and anytime our identity our value is derived from something external like work we will begin to operate in a way that compromises our joy and our peace and our sanity. Being hooked to the opinions of others brings despair. People pleasing brings a fatigue that will set deep within your bones. And we're all familiar with the phrase burnout, but there's probably a more accurate phrase that I like to use. And it's not burnout, but burn in where we torch the things inside the, the all consuming fire of people pleasing burns inward and then outward. So do you want to live a life of impact? Do you want to enjoy building something remarkable? Do you want to go the distance? Well, the pathway is through self love and self respect. Your worth flows from being not doing. Nobody is changing anybody's mind. I mean, the minds are all made up, you know, whether this is uh, about religious beliefs or political beliefs. So I think, you know, you can certainly make your argument, but um, I really believe that I could convince anyone of, of our point of view. And I, I don't believe that anymore. <laughs> yeah, I, that's uh, so true. And, and, and sort of, conserving your energy for other things, things that where you can actually make a difference. I mean, there's, there's just a very strategic decision that's made when you're like, you know what, 
I'm not going to be able to change your mind. And so I'm moving on to other things. I think that's really healthy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think, you know, we, we, we've been very fortunate. We really haven't dealt with many critics. I mean, you know, I, I I don't come off a stage giving a, a speech about charity water and have people lined up to tell me to stop, you know, stop giving human beings clean drinking water. You know, you're harming them. Let them all die of pond water, you know, let the children die of dysentery. You know, nobody says that, right? And it's been, uh, if anything, it's over the years, it's been harder to get negative candid feedback because, you know, well, look, we're out saving the world, right? We're helping, you know, a million people a year get clean water, give them a break. So I've, I've really tried to find mentors, uh, one who, who I write about in the book, who was really instrumental, who gave me ne- lots of negative feedback. I'd say 80% of his feedback was, you know, here are the things you're not doing right. And that was so valuable to me. I mean, I crave that. So, you know, I think uh, it, it does annoy me when, you know, you get some snarky, like, I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I just saw this random tweet where someone said, you know, did you see that the, um, you know, the charity, uh, charity water CEO drives like a, a really nice car. I'm like, what? You know, and, and there's probably an argument like, so what if I actually did and, and would it be their business? And who knows, like, you know, maybe somebody died and left me. I mean, you know, who knows? But I, I like lease a 2016 Kia Sorento that's got two car seats installed and tons of raisins and crackers, you know, smushed between the cracks. And, you know, like, I mean, I actually think my 2016 Kia Sorento is an amazing car. Like when the lease is up, I'm going to get another Kia Sorento. But like, you know what I mean? That, that stuff just, um, uh, that used to really irritate me. And, you know, now you just yeah. kind of like, okay, no, whatever. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> it's, uh, everyone's got an opinion sometimes, right? And, uh, you got to know the ones to listen to and the ones to ignore. So let me ask you about, you're in an interesting dynamic and, and I find this to be just really interesting. You, you work with your wife. Uh, did, but yeah, did, and literally did, like did you guys did this thing for uh, together. You're in the trenches together for such a long time. Like that was such a, an amazing, uh, thing to watch. Uh, and I'm sure, uh, it was both awesome and complicated. Uh, it was, you know, I think what, what made it work was, we did different things and we didn't want to do the same things. So, you know, she had no desire to be on stage giving a keynote to 10,000 people. And I couldn't design my way out of a paper bag. <laughs> so she was an amazing, you know, visionary, creative designer, creative talent. Um, I was not, I had good taste. So we were able to partner in that way. And I think I was able to make her better by challenging um, design and, and, and you know, even, even challenging the strategic thinking around some of our campaigns and ideas. Um, but she never wanted to be the promoter. She never wanted to be out there in front promoting the organization or the issue. She never wanted to be fundraising. I mean, you know, the, if, if you told my wife she had to go out and raise money, and she would leave the country. <laughs> but yet I've spent every day of the last 12 years raising money. I mean, I don't think a day has gone by. I mean, you know, I, I joke about it, but 
you know, I, I pick up donors on planes. You know, if you get stuck next to me uh, on a plane, I mean, you're probably going to watch a video <laughs> or, right, there comes the iPad. Or, uh, it, it's funny, I, um, uh, I'm hosting an event with uh, Chris Saka in LA next week, who's been a longtime supporter of ours. And he was, the, uh, he was, he was on Shark Tank and he was a, one of the investors behind Twitter and Instagram and Uber. And when I first met him, it was 10 years ago, I got invited to the TED conference on a scholarship. And someone said, hey, you have to you know, meet this guy, Chris Saka. He's at Google. And if he likes what you're doing, uh, he could really help you. So I remember I had an iPod touch at the time. I walk up into this guy in a bar full of 400 people and I tap him on the shoulder and I ask him if he would put on my headphones and look at the 60-second public service announcement we just made for Charity Water in the bar. <laughs> and he actually did. And we became friends and, uh, you know, have, have worked together uh, on and off for a decade now. But, yeah, I mean, I'm still a little bit that promoter. Um, I don't get you. The, the money's not for me. Um, it's really for others. You know, it's either for our staff or our local partners. It's for the beneficiaries out there. So, uh, again, our roles were so different that I think it allowed us to work together. There were definitely moments of tension. Um, I was technically her boss, so I actually had to do performance reviews for my wife twice a year. So, there were, you know, there were some uh, nights close to sleeping on the couch. Let's just put it that way. Um, because I also believed in candor. And, you know, I, I felt like if I just said positive things all the time, well, then that would actually be hurting her professional development. So it was, it was sticky and, you know, we, yeah, now we're, now we're working together as parents um, with, with two young kids and um, she's starting a, a new business, uh, which will probably launch in the next couple months. And she's, she's doing some really interesting things, teaching um, branding, uh, branding and design to, to companies. Wonderful. I love that. And, I just, you know, as I've watched you guys over the years and I, I, I'd be curious, like, what, what do you think has been the key to just a healthy marriage and a healthy relationship between the two of you? I think we communicate pretty well. I think we set expectations pretty well uh, with each other. So there are seasons of, you know, intense travel, you know, I'm about to go on a book tour and I'll be gone for for two weeks. I mean, sometimes I've got to go to Mozambique or Malawi or Bangladesh or Ethiopia. Um, and it's just, it's, it's kind of trying to plan for that. And then there are seasons where, you know, I'm home, uh, where I'll, I, I won't get on a plane for a month and then I'll go get on 16 planes in the following month. So just that's, that's one of the hardest things I think is just dealing with the travel and being able to just over communicate has been helpful. Um, gosh, what else? We, uh, I wouldn't say we do the date night thing as well as certainly, you know, you and your wife are pros at, at dating each other. Um, you know, we're in a season right now where we really do enjoy the kids. And when I'm home, you know, we want to be together as a family. We're starting to do more of that and be more intentional. I'd say so at least two or three times a month, we're, we're getting a babysitter and we're finding time to get out and, um, try and talk about things that are not our children. Um, and, and that's always really rewarding. And it's really enjoyable. Um, we, we used to say for years, we had work-life integration. Uh, we were always talking about work, 
when we were working together because it was it was a mission it was a calling it was a thing that we did together and now you know Vic stepped down to to really focus on our kids for a couple of years and now as they start going to school um she isn't really interested in coming back to charity water you know she she did an amazing nine years and now she's got a different set of interests that she wants to pursue she wants to teach she wants to help others benefit from what she learned uh, in storytelling and branding and and marketing charity water that she thinks could be you know a real gift to others and i'm still focused on trying to get to 663 million people who still don't have water and we're 8.4 million down so we're 178th of the way there uh so i'm i'm more more focused than ever on how do we actually bring a day on earth uh see a day on earth where every single human being has clean water to drink we hope to see that day too scott and thanks for your courage to chase your dreams for your optimism and your work that is changing the world one cup of clean water at a time so again i want to encourage you to get scott's new book New York Times best-selling book, Thirst, a story of redemption, compassion, and a mission to bring clean water to the world. By the way, 100% of the proceeds, like I mentioned before from Scott's book, go to charity water projects. Okay, Every penny from the book uh, proceeds goes to helping people have access to clean drinking water. So Fun Therapy family, let's support this. Let's get behind this. Buy the book for yourself, for a friend, or if you're not a reader, just simply support the cause. Get a copy. It's available at Amazon or wherever books are sold. It's also in almost every airport bookstore because I have seen it every time I'm flying somewhere. There is Scott's book, and I love that. Scott, thanks again for sharing with us today. Keep up the wonderful work. And Fun Therapy family, get the book. Well, that does it for this episode. Let me ask you uh, to share with a friend, screen capture your phone right now, share it online, keep spreading the word about fun therapy. This is such an exciting ride that we're all on. I love how this is impacting you. I love the stories that I'm hearing. It's inspiring to me how you are living your lives. And I'm so glad we're doing it together. If you're on iTunes, make sure to rate and review Fun Therapy. I want to say thanks to Ryan that's uh, sleeping at last for providing the beautiful music for this episode. You can get Ryan's music on iTunes and Spotify and connect with him at sleepingatlast.com. And friends, I'll see you on Instagram, right? Connect with me at MikeFoster2000. Also hop on over to my website, MikeFoster.tv for my speaking calendar and resources and workshop information. I love you. I believe in you. Keep shining your goodness into each other. And remember, no matter what has happened in your story, that your setbacks can become your superpowers and honesty is always the best policy. We'll see you next time on the Fun Therapy Podcast. <laughs>